week, PG&E expects to file plan by September 9th. Alta Mesa files 10K, warns a potential default. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher, coming to you from Reorg's offices in New York. Later this episode, Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants in the U.S., interviews John Williams, partner in Milbank's credit derivatives practice about the rise of net short provisions in debt documents. It's Sunday, September 1st. On Wednesday, Judge Dennis Mentale denied the PG&E debtor's motion to preliminarily enjoin further prosecution of the wildfire securities action against, quote, those of the debtor's current and former directors and officers that are named as defendants, among others, concluding that the debtors have failed to carry the, quote, heavy burden of justifying the extreme remedy of injunctive relief, the judge explained that it is insufficient for debtors to argue that prosecution might be costly to them, their insurers, or both. The proper remedy, he went on to say, is for the district court defendants to defeat that action in the district court by motions or otherwise. Earlier in the week, Judge Mentale held a status conference confirming a September 9th expected plan filing, as well as setting a September 24 planned status conference. Discussing the timeline, Judge Mentale warned the debtors that a plan should include substantive terms, explaining that if the filing is, quote, bogus, he would be amenable to terminating exclusivity, quote, very quickly. Meanwhile, Judge Terry Jackson of the California Superior Court in San Francisco issued an order setting a September 16th hearing on the debtors in TCC's anticipated motion for preference in setting a trial in respect to the Tubbs fire cases. Under California law, a trial court may grant a preference for an accelerated trial in the interest of justice. Should preference be granted, the Tubbs fire trial will have to begin within 120 days subject to short continuances in limited circumstances. Finally, as previously expected, District Court Judge James Donato entered a docket order Tuesday setting a status conference regarding the estimation of unliquidated claims arising from the Northern California wildfires for September 10th with a joint status conference statement due September 5th. According to the order, parties should be prepared to discuss the legal and factual issues for resolution. A proposed case schedule, coordination with related proceedings in the bankruptcy and state courts, and settlement procedures. Alta Mesa Resources filed its long-delayed 10K for the year ended December 31, 2018, and in it stated that it does not expect to be able to maintain compliance with the consolidated total leverage ratio covenant of four times in its RBL as early as the measurement date of September 30th. The Scoop Stack Focus Company, composed of an EMP and a midstream, reiterated in the 10K that it may be necessary to file a voluntary relief for under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code as it pursues a restructuring. The company repeated that lenders under the facility reset the borrowing base to $200 million effective August 13th, as a result of which Alta Mesa's combined borrowings and letters of credit outstanding exceed the new borrowing base. The company is required to make ratable payments of $32.5 million per month over the next five months starting in September to bring its utilization in line with the borrowing base. The company said that it held just $87 million in cash as of July 31st. 
Quote, if we are unable to make this repayment, we will be in default under the Alta Mesa RBL, according to the release, which would raise substantial doubt regarding Alta Mesa's ability to continue as a going concern, the release continued. In addition, the release said, should Alta Mesa be required to seek protection under laws governing bankruptcy before July 2020, we believe there is a risk that it or the courts could attempt to reject or alter agreements between KFM and Alta Mesa that would result that would cause KFM's consolidated revenues to be negatively impacted by more than 15%, which would constitute an event of default under the KFM credit facility as amended, giving our lenders the ability to accelerate repayment of all outstanding amounts. The 10K notes that the company is considering operational matters such as reducing its forecast capital plan. The company commenced a new development program in March 2019 with a, quote, less dense spacing pattern of up to five wells per, sec- per section. The company has operated two rigs since restarting the program. However, following the redetermination of the borrowing base, Alta Mesa said that it decided to operate one rig starting in September. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, sources indicated that formal mediation sessions aimed at building consensus toward a Commonwealth plan of adjustment are expected to get underway immediately after the Labor Day weekend. The mediation team, led by Judge Barbara Hauser, has developed a schedule for the first two weeks of September and is inviting specific parties to these initial sessions, according to two of the sources, who added that the mediation team has signaled to parties that it intends to include more parties later in September depending on the progress made during the first two weeks. Judge Hauser's team is currently drawing up a detailed outline on the sequencing for the various gating issues identified by Judge Laura Taylor Swain in her July 24th order and creditor advisors. The planned sessions follow an August 23rd speech by Natalie Juresco, Executive Director of the PROMESA Oversight Board, in which she stated that the board will file a plan of adjustment for $35 billion of Commonwealth debt and $50 billion of pension liabilities shortly and is weeks away from a, br- a real breakthrough. Quote, on the path to pulling Puerto Rico out of Title III bankruptcy. Juresco, speaking to the Association of General Contractors last week, stated that, quote, massive debt is what keeps Puerto Rico in bankruptcy, and bankruptcy is what holds back economic growth and denies us stability. Juresco stressed the Commonwealth's need to get through bankruptcy, quote, as quickly as possible. Also, in the ongoing takings clause claim litigation pending in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, Judge Richard Hurtling entered an order on Tuesday state staying the ERS bondholders lawsuit following its status conference to address questions raised by the court with respect to the impact of certain litigation in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and the pending Supreme Court review of the Aurelius Appointments Clause decision. The order stays the takings claim litigation in light of the appeal currently pending before the First Circuit related to Judge Laura Taylor Swain's ruling addressing the applicability of Section 552 of the Bankruptcy Code and whether that section prevented any security interest from attaching to revenue received by ERS during the post-petition period. Other top stories this week were, one, Malacrop borrows $95 million on Revolver, leaving no remaining availability. Two, opioid litigation. Judge orders Jansen, J&J defendants to pay $572 million to abate public nuisance in Oklahoma AG trial. And three, U.S. trustee appoints seven-member UCC in Sanchez Energy Chapter 11, including Delaware Trust Company and all state investments. And now, as always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. 
Well, hello, Mark, and hello there, everyone, and let me be the first to say welcome back, especially when the old Magic 8-Ball is promising, if I can make some metaphors here, a bad moon horizon, which means, of course, we're all going to be very busy. Monday, of course, is a day that we're not going to be busy. It's Labor Day, and I think what you do, you're supposed to do is go out and buy something. Uh, Tuesday, September 3rd, second day hearing in Jack Cooper, South Cross Energy, midstream provider. We have an auction for their assets, those being some pipelines in Mississippi and Alabama, and in the Corpus Christi, Texas area, Legacy Reserves, we have a status conference. Wednesday, September 4th, Approach Resources, a forbearance already extended for its credit agreement ends today. Halcone Resources, a second day hearing. Hmm, anybody noticing a pattern there? On to a completely different part of the world, not to mention reality. Barney's in New York City, Bruce Springsteen shops there. Did you know that? Well, there's a second day hearing for the retailer, which I guess means the boss didn't shop there enough. Anyway, on Thursday, September 5th, Del Monte, the purveyor of bananas, another green things you always got nagged to eat but never wanted to, second quarter earnings. And Hovnanian, which like Del Monte is based in California, we have second quarter earnings as well. Ajirion, we have a second day hearing. That's three seconds in a row. And, well, what do you know? There's another energy name, Emerge Energy, looking for its approval of its DS. And we also have omnibus hearings in Cloud Peak and Insys Therapeutics. And there you have it. Make sure you see our weekly calendar released Tuesday morning, which will show you the sector breakdowns of Chapter 11 cases seen so far this quarter. Thanks, and back to you, Mark. Thanks, Jim. Now I'll turn it over to Peter in his interview with John Williams. I'm joined here today by John Williams, a partner in charge of Milbank's derivatives practice. John advises on issues involving derivatives documentation and regulatory matters, including commodities and securities regulations applicable to both cleared and uncleared derivative transactions. John has been ranked as a leading lawyer in and called a credit derivative expert by Chambers Global, and the 2015 edition of the Legal 500 United States simply referred to him as the Tremendous John Williams, a title most of us can only hope to attain. John recently published an incredibly helpful and interesting client alert titled, Net Short Lender Disenfranchisement. Is the new anti-CDS vaccine safe and effective? And he's here today to discuss that exact issue with us. So tremendous, John Williams. Thank you for being here today. Um, so I guess before we get into these uh, the, the net short provisions, uh, let's kind of take a step back and discuss the events that led to these provisions being um, in the debt documents. Um, can you give our listeners a quick overview of the Windstream Aurelius litigation? Windstream is a uh, large telecom company, and in 2015, uh, it um, uh, spun off uh, a lot of its uh, uh, telecom assets into a separate uh, company called Unity and uh, arranged uh, a, a lease back uh, from that entity. So, uh, but, it, but it undertook the transaction, structured the transaction in a way that uh, the company felt complied with the indenture, which had a provision which prevented sale and leaseback transactions. And um, uh, without going into too many details, the, the, the fundamental structure was to sell sell the, um, the, the uh, cable and so on to uh, one entity and then uh, lease from another uh, parent entity. So the... Um, but that that's the basic idea. Now there were there was a lot of uh, bondholder uh, there were a lot of bondholder complaints about that at the time, um, but um, the transaction went through, and um, a, a couple of years after it happened, 
uh, Aurelius bought uh, some uh, bought into some of the outstanding bonds uh, and essentially pursued uh, litigation to argue that that sale and leaseback transaction was a violation of the indenture. Um, and the the uh, the litigation started in 2017, and eventually in 2019, um, the 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 court found that the Aurelius arguments were correct. Now, in the meantime, um, Windstream had undertaken some uh, steps to try to to run an exchange offer so that they could dilute Aurelius out of uh, their position and get existing bondholders to waive the uh, alleged event of default um, for a variety of technical reasons. Uh, the court ended up finding that those steps were not effective, partly because uh, a pre-existing event of default had happened. And so in February of this year, uh, the court entered a $300 million judgment against Windstream, which was essentially an acceleration of uh, the bonds that uh, Aurelius held. And the company did not have sufficient liquidity to pay that judgment. So it filed a Chapter 11 right after that. Uh, so you know, so Aurelius owned the bonds and it called an event of default. Um, I mean, I think, you know, so it essentially put the company into bankruptcy. Wouldn't that have hurt the value of of those bonds that it held. Yeah, exactly. So people assume that uh, the only reason Aurelius would do that uh, w- is because it had it stood to gain much more uh, from a separate CDS position where it had bought protection. Now, n- we don't we don't nobody nobody knows for sure that that's the case, but uh, but everybody assumes that's the case. Okay, so so that's kind of where we are. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, we had um, a company did a transaction, and five you know six years later. Um, a hedge fund bought into the company's bonds, bought protection for those bonds in the form of CDS, um, called an event of default, and you know they litigated it. The company was found to have violated the bonds at you know when they did the sale leaseback, um, and the company eventually was pushed into bankruptcy. So um, I think we started seeing um, earlier this year, maybe in in, in March or, or April. Um, certainly in the high yield market and um, in the in the bank debt market as well, uh, we saw some some agreements starting to put in provisions that um, seem to kind of tackle this this issue of of investors getting into the company's debt and then calling for an event of default for events that had happened sometime in the past. That's right. Um, so uh, these the 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 simplest um, version of this that we saw is a provision that simply says. You cannot call an event a default on something that happened more than two years prior to the day you're calling it. Uh, and of course, that raises a question about how do you determine when something happened? Um, certain kinds of events, it's very easy to say that for others, less so. Um, but uh, usually the provisions uh, are drafted to say that the, the, the clock runs uh, from the time that the event is disclosed to the public or to holders. Um, and so something like this uh, sale and leaseback transaction it would be pretty easy to say when when that was disclosed. Um, uh, of course, you know there was debate about whether or not it was actually a violation of the of the indenture uh, right from the beginning. But um, but at least the facts of the transaction you know were disclosed at a certain point by the company, and that's how you would measure the time. Um, obviously. Uh, creditors and those who represent them um, and investors and those who represent them have some concerns about um, what might uh, eventually uh, happen to the credit markets if this kind of provision shows up all the time. Um, Because 
um, uh, fundamentally, of course, uh, uh, it, it covenants and, um, uh, and, and the like are in the documents so that, uh, investors can be protected. And, um, if there are violations of those covenants, uh, you, you would, you would hope as an investor that you could always enforce those and not have to worry about the timing. Of course, on the borrower side, people, uh, are, um, uh, concerned about um, being able to manage the to manage the company and be you know sort of feel safe that at a certain point things that happened in the past are no longer going to going to come back to bite them. So I, would you say that these were? Um, I, I mean, how often are you kind of seeing these these you know the, the two year essentially temporal limitations? Um, was that met by a lot of investor pushback, or you know, given it's kind of you know, a very limited provision of just, you know, two years. Um, kind of how, how were you seeing that handled by the market? I, I think that, um, I think this is a point of negotiation. Um, and so I think that uh, if um, if a, a borrower is, is a strong credit and uh, there's demand for the paper, I think borrowers are going to be able to get that provision into their trans, into their, into their deals. I think people also, even on the investor side, probably feel that two years is not a crazy, unreasonable amount of time. I think there's a lot of concern that, as that shows up in documents um, uh, in the credit ecosystem, it'll get shortened. Um, and if you shorten it down to say six months, then you you really are getting to the point of diluting the ability of uh, investors to actually use those covenants. So I, I think um, we'll see what happens, but um, there's definitely some pushback um, uh, at times, but it's it's it, it very much is a negotiation point. Right. Okay. And so, um, you know, we, we, at least from the, the bond side, you know, we saw, I think it was Charter Communications, Builders First Source, and I think Grubhub, a few others had these two-year temporal limitations. Um, starting, I, I think, you know, probably at the beginning of the summer, maybe mid-May, uh, we started seeing a number of LBOs come to come to market um, that kind of took the the two-year uh, temporal limitation, um, you know, anti-windstream provisions, and kind of you know blew them out of the water with you know adding uh, um, you know many more pages of kind of conditions, and the this was kind of the birth of the you know the quote the net short provisions. Um, could you kind of tell you know walk us through just an, an overview of these provisions? Sure. Um, yeah. So the first one that um, uh, was broadly described in, in the market was uh, the serious computer solutions, and um, uh, as you correctly point out, that's a, the, an event that, that uh, um, something that happened with respect to the loan market, and we've seen uh, versions of the computers uh, of the serious computer solutions language be replicated in a bunch of other. Uh, loans in different ways, but fundamentally, um, the the goal of those provisions from the borrower side is to try to make sure that a lender, and if you apply them in the bond context, a, a bondholder, cannot vote its position if, on the whole, it is net short. So, in other words, if it's in the situation that everyone presumes Aurelius was in, where uh, there, you know, the, where the lender or the borrower or the holder is going to get uh, more of a benefit from seeing the company go into default than than uh, than just holding the instrument and having it uh, repaid or retain its value. So um, the the provisions that we've seen have um, 
basically, uh, uh, you can you can think about it in in four pieces um, when you try to understand how these provisions work. One is uh, what actions do, does the prohibition apply to? Um, another is what which institutions is it just the lender? Do you have to count affiliates? Are there any exclusions for certain types of institutions? Third is how do you actually count whether you're net short or not, which is very challenging. And fourth is what are the consequences if you are net short. So on on going through each of those, uh, the first one is what actions are are targeted. So in the serious version, we saw that the provision said that anybody any any vote, any waiver, any amendment, any action at all, even receiving information, any other action as a lender, in order to take that action, you have to be, you cannot be net short as a lender. Um, so that's obviously a, a, a wide range of issues. Now, if we look at, for example, um, some some other versions we've seen later, the most um, the first time we saw this was in the bond market in in Allied. Um, the the actions were limited simply to voting or directing the trustee to send an event of default notice or an acceleration notice. So that's obviously a more narrow construction of that issue. Um, and in talking to investors, um, uh, you know, certainly people in the credit ecosystem are um, are very allergic to the broader uh, version of this. Um, so that's just which actions are affected. In terms of what entities, um, we've seen variation here as well. Sometimes the provision requires lenders to include their affiliates positions in calculating whether they're net short, and sometimes uh, they don't. Sometimes the um, the affiliate uh, the affiliates that need to be included are only uh, specifically uh, defined as. Uh, um, uh, so sometimes uh, we, you only have to count affiliates that are not uh, on the other side of an information barrier or separately managed. Um, so we've seen some movement there. Uh, there also are usually exclusions for uh, regulated banks. Uh, so in other words, uh, if a bank is a lender, it can be net short and still vote its position. Um, so the, the third thing, which is um, <clears throat> the most complicated part of this, is how do you actually calculate whether somebody is net short? So um, w um, there are uh, obviously a number of different ways in which an investor can be exposed to the credit of a borrower. You might, have, you might own the loan, you might own the bond, you might own equity. Um, and then there are a few different ways that you can be short. The most obvious is you can buy standard CDS referencing the borrower, um, but there are other ways that you might be able to construct a short position as well. I mean, you could also be short the equity, for example. Um, <clears throat> what we have seen about in almost in really every one of these deals is that the market has not yet, in my view, gotten to the point where it has a technically correct version of how you calculate how you should calculate net short, and that's viewed from either the borrower's perspective or the lender's perspective. So in all of the versions we've seen so far are deficient in some, you know, fairly obvious ways once you realize that there are all these different ways you can be short or long. So, for example, the serious computer solutions provision um, counts as shorts, um, regular CDS uh, referencing the borrower, but it only counts the long position of holding the loan. So if you hold the if you if there's a bond, 
you don't count that in the provision. So, and there are a number of other deficiencies. Um, now, we've also seen a totally different way of trying to handle this in the bond market, in the Allied deal. Um, the, the drafters of the indenture wrote the provision to say that if the value of your shorts uh, outweighs the value of your longs, then you're net short. But value is not defined. And furthermore, um, the provision uh, says not only are you supposed to calculate value today, but also you're supposed to calculate value as if the company has already filed for bankruptcy. And honestly, I have no idea how you would do that. <laughs> you, you obviously can't use uh, any sort of market um, uh, prices for a hypothetical situation. So, um, but, but the whole problem of undefined you know, small v value in a provision like this um, is really, really challenging if people are trying to give correct reps. Um, so I think that doesn't really work very well. Um, I think that um, the, the serious computer uh, solutions language, which has since been refined in a number of, of loans, um, uh, probably does work, at least uh, because it works off notional value. It is something that you can actually measure. Um, but it doesn't, as I said, capture all the different ways you can be short or long. Um, so the fourth thing I said was, well, what are the consequences? And there we see a lot of variety as well. Um, uh, the serious computer uh, deal um, included some pretty draconian consequences. If you were net short, not only did your vote not count, which is the obvious one, but you could actually be um, forced out of the loan altogether um, at the lesser of uh, <clears throat> what you paid for it and market value. So that that's obviously a, a real problem. Those kinds of provisions, any provision really that does that has any consequence other than um, then not then causing your vote not to be counted is one that I think investors are really worried about because it means that when you consider buying the loan in the first place, you have to worry about, well, how could we be stuck with this? And in fact, I think we've heard from investors, they're just going to create uh, lists, essentially restricted lists, um, if they buy into a loan and then nobody can trade CDS. Other investors, that's just not the way their books work, so they can't do that. So that means they're just never going to buy the loan in the first place. So I think what's happening now is the loan market is so hot, there's a lot of demand for paper in most of these deals, um, that uh, these kinds of concerns about the broader credit ecosystem that come into play when you go to sell the loan later are not really getting a lot of traction at the time the deal documents are getting done. So that's what we're seeing. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, given the, the wide range of, you know, not only actions that are that are affected, but, you know, you know, something as basic as how do you how, how do you uh, quantify a, a net short? It seems like a lot of these provisions were, you know, in some cases, a reaction, in some cases, an overreaction to Windstream. And they were kind of just, you know, lumped into these documents, not haphazardly. I mean, obviously, a lot of thought has gone into it. But it seems that, as you were saying, a lot of them. You, it's 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 almost impossible to enforce it, given that there's there's vagueness around what the meaning of value is. Um, it plays it also plays a lot of uh, you know burden on on investors. I mean, they have to go to you know a lot of these hedge funds have you know countless you know sub portfolio right. groups. Um, it just seems like it's going to be very hard to enforce you know any one of these four issues that you kind of outlined. Um, I mean, do you think at some point there's going to be some kind of you know, organized way to get these concepts in? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's an interesting <clears throat> example of, you know, what happens to, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the market wants to move towards 
a, an accepted uh, way of drafting for a particular problem, and then that creates, uh, you know, once you get to the the sort of highest and best version of a particular provision, then it's interpreted the same way and people have certainty, right, in the case of a dispute. And we aren't there yet, as you point out, with this language. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I do think it's going to continue to evolve. And, and we have, uh, every time we see it uh, in a transaction, we, we sort of have our list of ways to try to get to what we think would be, uh, you know, a, a more workable solution um, for, for some of these problems. And um, some of that is is getting into deals, and some of some of it isn't. It depends on what the deal negotiation dynamic is. I mean, some of these, a lot of these names, currently a lot of these borrowers don't have CDS traded on them now anyway. So in many cases, you know, this issue is far down the list of things that are relevant to getting the deal done, um, and yet um, it's certainly. Um, one of the things that most investors like to talk to us about anyway, there's a lot of interest um, about, you know, how much this is going to screw up their ability to buy or sell things in the future. Um, and we do see this when a particular, you know, loan deal or bond deal is, 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 is running into a little bit of trouble uh, for whatever reason. The, at that point, these kind of secondary market concerns become really important. Um, and we saw that a lot outside the context of the net short issue. We saw that a bunch last year um, uh, with, for example, with respect to the, the uh, United Foods loan and the Neiman Marcus uh, uh, you know, credit documents where certain investors uh, who had CDS positions one way or the other said, we need you to rearrange your deal in such and such a way in order to make it more interesting for us. So I think that when you have, you know, a little more uh, balance, so to speak, between investors and the borrower, you're going to get these kinds of issues um, getting uh, be- better, tighter attention. Right now, um, you know, just kind of now stepping back from the net short, I mean, um, you know, these these provisions obviously were were in reaction to, uh, you know, an event, uh, the Windstream Aurelius litigation. Um, you know, ha- have you been, uh, just generally speaking, are there any kind of other terms or provisions in these agreements that you see that are kind of in reaction to, you know, one company doing something and uh, lenders worrying that, um, you know, documents that they that they are currently involved in could allow a similar transaction or, you know, just generally any kind of provisions that are being pushed into documents based on uh, extraneous events? So I think it's pretty common, right, uh, Peter, we were talking about this before, that uh, in, in with respect to especially some of the more um, uh, uh, complicated covenant provisions that if people see that in another deal that has similar language, um, uh, something didn't work the way people expected or investors managed to get around things, you see people try to tighten up language or change things around, you know, maybe, for example, the definition of a particular basket or what what, what you're allowed to do with restricted or unrestricted subs. And we've seen, we see lots of movement in, you know, over time in the high yield market. And this is kind of how it gets done. Some Some big thing happens in the market. Maybe it's a court case like uh, windstream, or maybe it's uh, just some kind of uh, restructuring transaction, like a J. Crew or something like that, and that causes people to uh, uh, start to tweak their documents. And sometimes that can be a little bit haphazard. 
Yeah, I, you know, we, uh, we uh, so I, I wrote something on a BMC software, for instance, and, you know, they're an IP-heavy company, right. and um, a lot of their investment baskets in their bonds, which typically allow unlimited investments within right. their circuit group, uh, restricted IP moving to non-guarantors. But, you know, they have massive general investment baskets, which can be used for the same thing. So, you know, they plug one hole, and but it's kind of like a whack-a-mole. They, they need to plug everything. Um, now, you know, so I, we can, we, uh, we need to wrap up now, but, um, you know, I just remember remember uh, when PetSmart did their transactions last year, you know, everyone was in uproar and people kind of wanted to tighten documents or, you know, we had a lot of calls with subscribers who were, who wanted to know, uh, you know, capacities under other debt documents to do it. A uh, year, you know, that was a year ago, more, you know, maybe almost two now. Um, it's kind of all but forgotten. You're seeing kind of these aggressive deals coming right back, you know, huge capacities to transfer unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, do you think these net short provisions are kind of here to stay or, you know, down the road, do you think these are? You know, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that um, we, we talk about this a lot um, at Millbank because we just see it in one deal after the other uh, currently. And um, I think it probably is going to stay. Um, but um, we also have heard from, um, you know, large uh buy side firms that have both a sponsor arm and a credit arm that they've discussed it internally and decided that their institutional position is that they would rather not see these provisions in the document, which I, I find that to be the most interesting piece of market data because um, the, there aren't too many institutions where this the two sides of this debate can be internalized. But at, 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 a, at a couple of them where that was the case, where that's the case, they what we understand is they've come to the institutional position that they'd rather not see this stuff in the documents at all. Um, and so I don't know, maybe that suggests that over time, although this is going to pop up in some documents, it's not going to be widespread. But I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Right. All right. Well, um, this has been uh, very helpful for me, and I hope it uh, I hope it was helpful for uh, all of our listeners. John, thank you very much for, for uh, coming here today. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg.